All right, so I know that we're all still coming off of that holiday season, and we've kind of been all over the place still. So with that said, I just want to give a really quick recap of everything that we've gone over so far. That way we're all starting on the same page. So what we're working through is the life of Jesus, the story of Jesus, and looking closely at his time here on earth, because if we are to be followers of Christ, then we should know with certainty and with completeness exactly who Jesus Christ is. In the past two weeks, Pastor Bobby has been speaking on what was happening in Jesus' life before his formal ministry began. It began with the Magi and their travels to Jesus. So they began traveling to Jesus, and they knew that he was coming because of Daniel's prophetic words in the Old Testament, and that those had been passed down generation through generation. And the significance of their visit was that it officially declared Jesus as a king with their stamp of approval. He was acknowledged by the kingmakers, the magi, that power behind the power, and this was legitimizing the fact that the king had in fact arrived. And then last week, Bobby spent some time discussing on how Jesus was tested in the desert, and how testing is what really makes a person. Jesus could have chosen to take any of those offers that Satan had given him, but he chose to humble himself before the Father, and he chose to submit to the will of God. And in that same way that Jesus had been submitting himself to the will of God, he'd also submitted himself to a discipleship relationship with John the Baptist. And John was the forerunner of the whole ministry of Jesus. But he also modeled exactly what ministry should look like for Jesus. And he set the scene for everything that was about to come. And that leads us perfectly into our text today. John has now been arrested. And there's this void that needs to be filled where his ministry once was. And this is the moment where that earthly ministry of Jesus finally has that chance to take off. And today, we will take a close look at that very first sermon that Jesus gave and the two very different responses that he received in that first sermon. So, for me, when I hear those words, first sermon, it honestly sends a shiver down my spine. And if you've ever given a first sermon or your first speech in school or your first big presentation at work, I know you know exactly what I'm talking about, and I know that you can relate to what I'm, this feeling, that dry mouth, sweaty palms, shaky hands, locked knees, and stumbled words feeling, where you know that you're going to forget everything that you know, regardless of how much you've prepared. That anxiety and that weight of knowing that everyone is watching you, and you're presenting this material that you've worked so hard on, and you fear that if you mess it up, if it goes wrong, Maybe you'll never get that chance to do it again. And even if you haven't given a sermon, you probably had the misfortune of having to sit through someone's first sermon, and you can relate to this in a whole separate way. So whichever side of this you've fallen on, you know that my first sermon was probably not the highest caliber thing ever presented. My first sermon was when I was probably 18 or 19 years old. I remember sitting down at my desk in my room And I was trying to write something down and come up with something that would be new and exciting for the audience to hear. As if I, like a year into adulthood, could come up with anything that 2,000 years of theologians hadn't already covered. I tried to think of this incredible anecdote or some jokes 
to put in that went along with my sermon as if my job was not to share God's word, but to go up and entertain. But most of all, I was so burdened to speak about something special that God had put on my heart. And with all of that effort, I definitely made this way more complicated than I really needed it to be. And I know, I'm sure I didn't say anything that the people hadn't heard before. I'm sure my comedy routine fell flat. And I'm sure that I even shared some things that probably weren't quite right and weren't quite accurate to what the text was trying to say. And to be really honest with you, I don't even remember exactly what the sermon was about. I think it's one of those memories, you know, that it's subconscious that you kind of block out in an act of self-preservation. And all I remember is that it was about 15 minutes of some talking points on a handwritten outline, and it was um, not good. And there's probably a recording of that sermon out there floating around somewhere, and hopefully it's never going to find its way back to me. But even beyond my first sermon, there's been plenty of times that I've gotten up to speak and I have fallen flat, and it was not quite up to par with what I was hoping for. And even if you haven't given a proper sermon in front of a congregation, you still have probably tried to share the gospel with someone, and you've come away with that same exact feeling, that it wasn't good enough. You came away with that feeling that you didn't say the right words, or maybe the way you presented it just wasn't interesting enough. And we all have the tendency to do this as we think about what the gospel is and how to share it. We try to make it more interesting, and we try to make it more humorous, and we try to come up with all this eloquent language to really express the fullness of what the good news is. And all of this, as well-intentioned as it is, it just muddies the water. We can overcomplicate the great story of God with selfish motivation so that we can hopefully sound more interesting. We take something that should be very, very simple, and we turn it into this unattainably difficult message. But thankfully, we have such a great example of a gospel message that fully encapsulates God's entire message to the world. And that is in the very first sermon of Jesus. It's simple, it's sweet, and it doesn't miss any of the details that we need. So our series right now is taking us through those four gospel accounts chronologically. And for this particular moment, both Mark and Luke are going to give us our story. And Mark sums up this first sermon in just a few words. In Mark 1, 14 and 15, it says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Now, as we read this phrase, the time has come, questions should really start swirling in our minds right away. The time for what? Were we waiting for something? What exactly is it that we're waiting for? The kingdom of God has come near. This has been building since the fall of humanity and early on in the book of Genesis. And we've spent the last year studying the Old Testament and seeing all the things that God has done in the bigger narrative leading up to this exact moment. God has remained in control through all of the sin and all of the turmoil that the world had to offer, and it had a lot of it to offer. And through his own people, God has still advanced his will. 
But then the Old Testament is followed by a 400-year period where people desperately awaited and longed for that appearance of this Messiah. Year after year, generation after generation. But that time had still not come to fruition. And then the New Testament opens. Jesus is born. This stage has been set for God to begin that gospel story that everyone's been waiting for. The time was finally about to be here. So, John the Baptist comes onto the scene, and he makes his life a purposeful act of declaration, letting people know, we've waited for hundreds of years. Just wait. The time has almost come. Our Messiah is coming. Just hold on a little bit longer. Think of him like the previews before the movie you actually paid to see. And now, John has been placed in prison. Who is going to declare the time of the Messiah now? There's a void in the ministry that is immediately filled by Jesus in this moment. The previews have ended, and the movie has begun. Now, this is not to take away from what John did, because what he did was significant, and it's very obviously significant. But there's no arguing that what Jesus is about to do and what Jesus is about to say is going to make a much bigger impact with the message that comes from his first public sermon. The time has come. You've been waiting for your Messiah. You've been patient. You've gone through generations of silence, and you haven't found what you're looking for. But the time has come. Jesus is establishing his divine authority. Up until this point, there have only been messengers letting people know that at some point, the time was going to come, but it was some point in the future. And although these are all people of God, the messengers really didn't have any authority to say when that time had actually come. Jesus, however, does have this kind of authority because he is the very one that they've been waiting for. He is God. The time has come. And this, what an important moment for Jesus because there had been so much talk about who he might be and what he might look like. There had been so much speculation about what he might do and what he would do to address all the things that were going on in the world around him. And this isn't just a casual sentence. This is an authoritative declaration of God himself that the Messiah has finally arrived on earth. <laughs> we serve a God who keeps his promises. He said he would be here, and here he is. We worship a God who has perfect timing. Despite the waiting and all of the silence, he knew exactly when that right moment would be to reveal himself. We follow a God who is divinely authoritative. When we say we're Christ followers, we're not just following some random man. We're following God himself. We can be confident in whatever direction he takes us. But the follow-up question to this would be, then why do we act like we have better timing than God? Why do we act like we have more authority than God? And why do we act like we're the divine authority on our own lives? The answer to all that is we don't. We don't have that authority. But we can be confident in this. Jesus knows the right timing. He knows when your life will settle into that resolution that you've been looking for and that resolution that you need. 
He has the authority to direct your life as however he sees fit. Trust in the timing of God. Follow the direction of God. So Jesus announces his long-awaited arrival. The time has come. And immediately, he begins to paint the bigger picture of what it is that he's truly bringing in. Back in Mark 1.15, he says, The kingdom of God has come near. And honestly, what Jesus is saying here could take a full sermon series of its own to fully work through. But for the sake of time, I really need to summarize an overview together of what the kingdom of God really is and what it means to us. So to begin, we have to take a look back to the Old Testament. And in the book of Isaiah, God's kingdom is promised along with the eventual coming of the Messiah. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. Now, this section of Isaiah is outlining a promised Messiah who is going to come in with the power of the Spirit of God and bring good news. Isaiah describes how that Messiah will radically change the world around him as he ushers in something new that the world has not seen before. The phrases sovereign Lord and year of our Lord's favor tell us that when the time comes, God is going to be made king once again. The king will have a kingdom. And this is where Mark comes in and picks up the story that the promised king, the promised coming king is the Messiah. And Jesus preached, the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And the importance of this moment is missed by so many believers today, and it was definitely missed by many of the listeners then. This was a moment that God, through the appearance of Jesus, made a decisive move in the redemptive plan for the world. Not only was the Messiah here, a king was here. A kingdom was here. A new kingdom was here. And it may be easier for us to kind of talk through what the kingdom isn't in order to get a better idea of what the kingdom really is. So one common misinterpretation of the kingdom of God, at least from a more fundamental background, is that the kingdom of God is heaven. And this is a totally understandable mix-up, because even in the Gospel of Matthew, it translates to kingdom of heaven rather than kingdom of God. But Jesus is not describing heaven here. And that's not what the prophets of the Old Testament were talking about either when they were describing a kingdom. Heaven is not some faraway place that doesn't touch earth. Heaven is not a place that's far out of reach. No, instead, it's a spiritual dimension where the will of God remains supreme all the time. It's not a million miles off somewhere in space. It's close to us. Jesus, being on earth, physically showed heaven and earth touching together in that moment. Holy Spirit in us now connects heaven and earth spiritually. And with that said, heaven is not the kingdom of God that Jesus was talking about. The kingdom of God that the people were expecting was a total overhaul of the government and God coming and ruling as a king on earth. And even now, some faiths and denominations still hold this to be true, and they're waiting for God to come over, come and take over and destroy the earth and create something totally brand new that belongs to God. 
But this is not the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about either. God's plan has never been to destroy the earth. But God's plan has always been to restore it. God is not going to create something brand new. He's going to fix what's already here. So God's plan was never to spark his entire kingdom through governmental powers. And this is a mindset that's so pervasive in the church today on both sides of the spectrum. The more progressive sect of believers feel that the kingdom can only be brought in through social change and the fight against injustice. But again, this is not what Jesus was describing at all. Jesus said the kingdom of God is here. But look around us. Are there not injustices happening all over the world right now as we're sitting here? There are nations that are being unjustly invaded. There is slavery. There is human trafficking. There's so much racism and anti-Semitism. And if God's kingdom is brought in by social justice, is it really here? And the same is true for the more conservative, conservative sect of believers. They believe if we could just get the right people in governmental office, then we could mandate the faith and everything would be good. I'm sure that you've heard people say, all we need to do is get so-and-so to be president, and then we'll get this country back in the good graces of God. <laughs> and I hope hearing that makes you roll your eyes a little bit, because we know that's not what Jesus is talking about. The kingdom of God is so much bigger than any social or political movement. God wants justice, and God wants his will to be done. But the kingdom of God is not going to be ushered in through social change or political power, because that would crown us the kings of God's kingdom. Now, the last thing that people say is the kingdom of God is the church. And I'm not going to say that this is completely wrong, but it's not a complete picture of the fullness of what's being described. And here's the big reveal. Jesus tells us very clearly what the kingdom of God is in the Lord's Prayer. When he's telling us the Lord's Prayer, he says, Your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The kingdom of God is simply where God's will is being done. This is why I say that we can't limit it to the church. Because the kingdom cannot be contained by the church because the church won't always be the church like this. The church as we know it here on earth right now is a temporary situation. There will be a time where all believers will be with God in his kingdom permanently. And God's kingdom will be expanded bigger and further than what we can even wrap our minds around right now. A good analogy when we're trying to consider what the kingdom actually is, is we need to think of Jesus as someone who planted a seed that's never going to die. A kingdom could not have been brought in by anyone but Jesus. It can't be built by anybody but God. So Jesus took that seed and he planted it. And it began to grow and it began to spread. It began just as a tiny sprout. But then the root system developed. And it spread all through the ground. Then upward growth began. And it began producing more seeds from that first seed that Jesus planted. And it hasn't spread everywhere quite yet. But it's moving. For now though, the kingdom of God can be in a person as they live out the will of God. It can be in a family. 
It can be a church. It can be a community. The true sign of a king is when the kingdom people are aligned and subject to your king. Wherever the will of God is being done, the kingdom is present. And all of this leaves us with a question that could not be more important to us. Are you a part of God's kingdom? Are you doing the will of God with your life all the time, sometimes, or maybe not really at all? Some of you might be saying, well, I don't know the will of God for my life. That's why I can't follow God's will. But here's the thing. If you're struggling with that, seek out someone who can help you know. Seek out someone who can help you learn, just as John did for Jesus. There are kingdom people in this room that are actively serving the king and would love to help you get off the bench and get onto the field and start serving God in his kingdom. The kingdom of God is something that should be on our minds a whole lot more than what it really is. And I'll speak to myself specifically and not pin this all on you guys. It should be on my mind a whole lot more than it is. Being subject to my king and accomplishing his will in my life is something that is usually not at the forefront of my motivations, if I'm honest. And I'm guessing that the same is probably true for a lot of us sitting in this room right now. But here's the thing. That's not a good enough reason for us to not be in pursuit of God's will. Is he your king? Yes. Is his kingdom here? Yes. Then his kingdom people have to be serving their king. And this may sound like it, but it's not just one simple little one-liner that Jesus throws out and then leaves alone to never discuss again. God's kingdom coming in with Jesus is a central part of the entire message that Jesus taught over and over again through all four of the gospel accounts. And we see it even more throughout the entire New Testament. What we need to take away as believers of the good news is that that kingdom of God is here and it is in us. Being a member of God's kingdom doesn't require us just to say it. It requires action. And Jesus is calling us to participate in those actions as he continues in his first sermon. Now, coming out of the Old Testament, we have to shift our perspective just a little bit as we look at the next command of Jesus. Because after letting people know that the kingdom was here, that the time had come, he gave them a task. And this is back in Mark 1.15. He says, repent and believe the good news. Now, repentance is a super common theme throughout the entire Old Testament. And together we've studied this story after the, Old after the story of the Old Testament prophets calling for repentance from God's people. But we have to keep in mind the biblical framework as we consider what Jesus is really saying in this moment. With the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing in, it's going to have a radically different dynamic between God and his creation. Now instead of calling for the repentance of a nation— or another specific group of people, Jesus is calling on each specific individual to repent. Jesus is calling on each one of you and me to repent. It's now up to each individual to repent of their own sins. So we've used this word repent a lot 
And if you've been in church for any amount of time at all, you've probably at least heard it in passing. But what does it actually mean for us? What is Jesus really asking us to do when he's giving us this command to repent of our sins? And repentance is going to begin with us turning away from our sins. It's going to be submitting ourselves to the will of God. Most of the repentance talk I've ever heard focuses on that turning away from sin, and obviously that's a big part of it. God wants us to flee from sin, and God wants us to live like he would. But the natural follow-up to that turning away from sin is turning away from sin and then submitting ourselves to the will of God rather than submitting ourselves to our own will. And this is another one of those things in the Christian life that is super easier said than done because this is not an easy thing to do. Because no matter how well-intentioned we may be, we all have our own agenda that we have to address. We all have our own biases that we have to address. We all have our own desires that we have to address. This can be as big as an agenda to change the world around you to the small things in life that you're striving for. You might have a lofty agenda to climb the corporate ladder and take over the company that you work for. Or maybe the biggest thing on your list right now is just to finally finish that bathroom remodel that you started during the pandemic and never got around to finishing up. And even more likely, maybe the most important part of your agenda is that you just really, really want to live comfortably. And don't get me wrong. It is totally okay to want these things. None of them are inherently against God's will. But the problem comes into play when our agenda overtakes God's agenda for our lives, God's will for our lives. We need to make the goals dream the dreams, and live the wonderful life that God has given to you. But we need to do that not at the expense of the will that he's purposed for you. If we're going to be truly, truly repentant, we need to make sure that we're not just turning away from sin, but that we're submitting our own will and our own agenda to the will of God. Do the things we want match up with the things that God wants and the things that God is asking of us. Repentance is also not just a one-time thing we do at the moment when we're saved. Repentance has to be an attitude that we adopt every single day in a mindset that we wake up with and decide to keep as we continue through our day, as life throws its normal things at us. We have to make the conscious choice to submit our will to the will of God. We have to make the conscious choice to humble ourselves before God and pursue His will. And we have to do that even when it doesn't align perfectly with our expectations. Repentance is requiring you to give something. Give up the things that are keeping you from your time with God. Give up those things that are keeping you from loving your husband or your wife well. Give up those things that are getting in the way of you raising your children to love the Lord and modeling what godly love looks like in their life. Turn your heart away from your own desires and turn towards God for guidance. But it doesn't stop there. After we repent, Jesus also told us to, in verse 15, 
believe the good news. But here's the thing about that. I think we've gotten to this point where seeing the phrase good news has been reduced to this just cultural norm. Especially here in Texas, it's hard to drive around anywhere without going some, past some billboard that says, good news. And that's wonderful. I love that we live in an area where we don't have to worry about being persecuted for our faith. And we can boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel. But maybe we've become so familiar and made this such a common phrase that we're a little bit desensitized to the magnitude of God's goodness in the good news. An even more heavy thought, maybe unbelievers don't seek out the good news because they allow their assumptions about it to dictate their understanding. All this talk of good news isn't great if people don't know what good news means. The good news is just what Jesus has said. The kingdom of God is near. The time has come. Redemption for God's creation has come through that promised Messiah, Jesus. And this is a big deal. Jesus told us, believe the good news. But believe alone isn't really the most comprehensive translation here. Yes, we're supposed to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And we are supposed to believe that everything that he said was true, because it is. But the English word believe leaves out an element of what he was actually communicating to his listeners. Now the Greek word here that Mark used is pistuo. And this is a bigger word than just believe like we use it. It's more all-encompassing. Yes, it means to believe, but it also means to trust. And it doesn't really stop at just trust. It also means to fully entrust. So this word pistuo has an implication of fully entrusting as we're believing the good news. So that implied trust is the biggest difference between English believe and this Greek word that Mark used, pistuo. Because Jesus isn't asking people to just blindly believe, like you believe in Sasquatch or you believe in the Loch Ness Monster or Santa Claus. That's not what he's asking. He's asking people to fully trust as well. And this may still seem pretty similar, but let me give you an analogy that might help clear it up a little bit more. You probably believe that your spouse loves you and will take care of you. You probably also believe that your job is going to provide you with a paycheck. However, the difference is that you have entrusted yourself to your spouse. You have entrusted your whole heart to your spouse, your life to your spouse. You've trusted that they're going to take care of you for better or for worse. It's a much deeper level of belief. Because your boss could get upset one day, and you could be let go just like that. You believed in that job. You believed that those paychecks were going to keep coming in. But we can't entrust our entire life to it because there's no guarantee that it will always be there. Jesus wants us to both believe what he says and he wants us to entrust our entire lives to him because of that belief. Jesus wants us to entrust not just ourselves but our entire families to him. Jesus wants us to entrust our wealth to him. The true all-encompassing belief that Jesus is asking for is something that's very radical. It's not an everyday thing. Belief is something that can be just surface level. 
Trust is the intended result of belief, but pistuo is the culmination of faith-filled belief in, in God as well as actively trusting him. This is the way that Jesus has truly called us to believe. So when you say you believe the good news, do you really believe it like Jesus asked you to? Take a look at your life. That will tell you. Have you really entrusted absolutely everything to Jesus? Or are there still a few things that you're just holding on to? Is your belief really rooted in trust? Or is it a surface level belief? And this was the first message that Jesus shared in his public ministry. The kingdom is here. And the time is now. Repent and believe. Now with this message comes the responsibility of us to further its reach. God has established his kingdom. And again, this is a huge deal. You have turned away from your sins and your self-driven priorities. You believe in God, and you believe, and your belief has resulted in that fully entrusting faith that is going to help you follow him, like he's asked. Now, how does all of this benefit others if you decide to keep it to yourself, if I decide to keep it to myself? The good news is good for everybody, and it is our God-given responsibility to share that good news with everybody that we come into contact with. And so often, I hear people saying how scary it is to share the good news and how scary it is to share this message. And guess what? They're right. I'm not going to take away from that because it is intimidating and it can be scary as we try to share something that we know has such weight and we know is so, so important. We feel the weight of people rejecting the message of Jesus as we share it. And oftentimes, the reality is that that really prevents us from sharing the message at all. But here's the thing. We can still be encouraged as we go out and share because Jesus dealt with the exact same thing. So while Mark is very concise in his coverage of this first sermon from Jesus, Luke tells a much more comprehensive version. And after the message is presented, we're given some details about the response from the people after hearing Jesus' words. So it starts in Luke chapter 4, verse 22. All spoke of him well, and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? And this is after Jesus has just shared this first sermon. And you can tell that things are going well enough. The people are speaking highly of Jesus. They're speaking well of him. They're amazed, and they're trying to take all those puzzle pieces and put them back together. But here's the thing. You can also already see that little shred of doubt creeping in with the question, isn't this Joseph's son? They're like, wait, we know this guy. Isn't he the boy that we just watched grow up down the street? On what authority can this guy speak? How is this Nazarene boy able to proclaim that the kingdom of God has come? Now imagine in this moment the tension just growing. Jesus goes to his hometown and he visits the local synagogue. He goes up and he preaches this simple kingdom-minded message on belief 
trust and repentance. Something that, regardless, shouldn't be very controversial. And it's going really well until that switch flips in their brain. And they start questioning, wait, who is this guy? And he knew that, that they were expecting something much bigger. They knew that they want, he knew that they wanted a whole lot more than what Jesus was giving them in this moment. They wanted a whole lot more than, than a message about a coming kingdom. So he addressed this. And he tells them that he would not do what they expected because a prophet is never accepted in his hometown. And now, this is where it really goes crazy. He criticizes their mindset and he predicts that his hometown people would reject him. He brings up revered prophets like Elijah and Elisha, who were both incredible men of God, no doubt. But they both dealt with incredible hometown difficulty, like the widows that were left without care, or the famine that came throughout the land, and widespread leprosy. And we need to keep this in mind that Jesus had much bigger things to accomplish at that moment than catering to their short-sighted questions, and that they had totally missed the point. Here, the hearts of those people are revealed when Jesus knocked down those proverbial idols that they had built in their hearts for the prophets. Jesus pointed out Elijah and Elisha because they weren't perfect men. And that was too much for this crowd to handle. They allowed that one statement to overshadow this world-shattering message that Jesus just gave, that the kingdom of God was here. And they responded violently in anger instead. It keeps going in Luke 4, 28 through 30, and it says, All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, they drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he just walked right on through the crowd and went on his way. And I bet all of in this room can at least say, after we've shared the gospel, nobody's tried to throw you off a cliff. But that's just a whole different level of rejection that we haven't even experienced. But this is exactly what Jesus was faced with. So, when we're feeling that pressure about sharing the gospel, but we're also feeling that fear that comes along with that potential rejection, we need to remember Jesus. Let go of that pressure that you're feeling. Because if Jesus couldn't convert every single person that he talked to, why in the world would we expect ourselves to do that? It's an unrealistic expectation, and it does nothing but it holds us back from the will of God in sharing the good news about this kingdom that Jesus brought in. We know that rejection in life is going to be inevitable, and there are so many things that we're willing to step out on a limb for and put ourselves out there to be rejected about. We're willing to put out that long-shot job application, even though that we know the answer is probably going to be no. We're willing to go ask out that person that's way out of our league, when we know that rejection is a very real possibility. And for these things that don't have near the significance of the gospel, we're willing to feel that sting of rejection. But are these the things in our lives that we're really willing to hang our hat on? 
are these the things in life that we should really go out on a limb for while ignoring God's call to share the good news of the kingdom? We have to acknowledge that the things that we often put ourselves out there for are things that are only passing. They are a part of this life that are so temporary. But the kingdom of God is eternal. Grasp the weight of what we've neglected because of our fear of rejection. We're skipping out on a command of God to share the redemptive plan of Jesus. This is such a big deal. So let's take a look at that response of Jesus again. And guess what? It's a great example, like always. Jesus is brutally rejected. And what does he do? He just walks right on through the crowd on his way. Jesus was not bothered when the people didn't accept what he was teaching. Did Jesus know that not everyone would get on board? Of course he did. But he was still faithful to share it anyway. We have to do the same thing. Share no matter what you think the response will be. Share when you think it's scary. Share when you don't think you have the right words to say. If it doesn't go well and you're rejected, follow that example of Jesus and just be on your way. You're still on mission for God, and your energy is better spent sharing it in another place. But the thing about Jesus is that he was not crippled by this rejection. We saw in his response that he wasn't at all even discouraged. He just kept on moving. He went right back out, and he kept looking for some people, because he knew they were out there, who would be willing to repent, who would be willing to believe and join in with him in the kingdom of God. And he did find them. The authors frame this back to back like it all happened in a couple of hours, but we really don't know how long Jesus was actually out looking for followers. It could have been a while. But when he found people, he found disciples who were truly willing to follow him. And this is back in Mark chapter 1 again. We start in 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. After this rejection, Jesus found some people who were willing to drop everything and really follow him. Now, there's two separate times in these verses where two groups of men totally and completely stop what they're doing, they leave their family and friends, and they follow Jesus in that very moment. And I think it's important for us to note the setting here as well. All of these men who just became disciples were just at work. They've been out all night on the boats, and they've also been working without any success. Luke tells us here in a few more details how they have struggled all night catching fish, but they've come up empty-handed. So these men are tired, they're frustrated, and they're discouraged. Yet, they still chose to drop what they were doing, and they fully trusted Jesus and followed him instead. And this is probably the opposite of what their bodies were telling them to do. They were exhausted. 
This was not a logical step for them to take. They were at work. These were paying gigs that helped them support themselves financially. These finances offered them food to eat, clothes to wear, a house to live, and so much more. And guess what? There was probably quite a bit of wealth here to be inherited as well for James and John. In Mark's account of the story, we see that they were on the boat with their father and a group of hired men. This probably means that their dad owned the boat and that he was healthy enough or wealthy enough to hire a bunch of men to work alongside him. They looked at Jesus. They looked back at that family business that could have comfortably supported them for the rest of their lives. But then they looked back at Jesus. And they decided it was going to be better to leave all of this behind and follow him instead. They left these paying jobs behind. They left family and friends standing there on the boat without looking back. They left wealth and security behind them in exchange for being a part of the kingdom of God that Jesus was bringing in. They heard the message of Jesus, and they responded not just with believing, but with action. They fully entrusted themselves to the Lord, and it's obvious because we see it. Who else was going to take care of them now except for Jesus? So there's understandable material limitations. When Jesus and Simon talk, the problems are less about the logistics and more about his own personal doubts and insecurities. And we're going to go back to Luke. Luke 5, 4 through 11. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let the nets down for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore. They left everything and followed him. Now, I love this telling of the story because this moment is so, so relatable for us. Simon had his doubts, and he expressed them openly. His doubts were with Jesus to start. Then Jesus proved himself with no trouble, like he's done for us so many times. Then Simon's doubts quickly shift away from Jesus, and he begins doubting himself. He didn't believe that he was worthy to even be a part of the kingdom of God. But Jesus, like he always does, responds in such a graceful way and says, you know, don't worry about all that. Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're with me. Now, I want us to all put ourselves in that place. I want you to imagine falling down on your knees in doubt and in fear, knowing that you can't do it alone. Then Jesus reaches out his hand and says, don't worry, you're with me now. And what a relief that would give. But here's the thing. 
the message that he gave to Simon is that same message that he brings to us. If we trust Jesus and we follow him with that same urgency and that same vigor, he's got us covered. We are his. And with that, we know that he is going to care for us. Don't worry about your inadequacies. Jesus will work through you exactly how you are. Don't worry about all those material possessions that you may leave behind. God is going to provide you with exactly what you need. When these disciples heard it, they sensed urgency in following Jesus. And they dropped what they were doing in that moment, and they followed him. But this leaves us with a really big question. What is it in your life that is holding you back from fully committing to Jesus? Are you allowing your self-doubt to keep you from being an active and fully committed member in the kingdom of God? So often I hear people talking about God's call in their life. But most of the time I hear people saying that they aren't really sure what that call of God is on their life and that they don't know what God wants them to do. But it's all right here. We're called to follow Jesus. We are called to be a part of the kingdom and repent and believe. We are all called not only to believe the good news, but to share it as well. So what are we waiting for? God has already made it crystal clear for anyone who wants to be a part of God's kingdom. The disciples here sensed urgency and they acted quickly. Now this is not to say that they didn't make some mistakes along the way, because they did. And guess what? So will we. But we still have to get to work following Jesus fully and being an active part and living in this kingdom that he has enacted on the earth now. Let's stop overcomplicating this. Share the kingdom of God and follow Jesus. That's all he asks us to do. This is the entire Christian life, and every part of it hangs on these two things. And nothing should hold us back from passionately pursuing God's kingdom. Now, would you bow your heads with me as we reflect together on the kingdom that Jesus brought in and what that means to us? What is it in life that's more valuable? What part of your agenda is so important that the will of God has to wait? We know that life is short, and there's so much more waiting for us if we will just commit to being an active citizen in God's kingdom. So for each of us in the room today, I want us to ask ourselves, am I even a part of God's kingdom that Jesus was talking about? And if not, ask yourself too, do I want to be? There's people all over the room that can help you know exactly what that looks like for your life. Find those people. All Jesus is doing is waiting for you to say yes to being a part of his kingdom. Just like he was when he stood on the side of those boats just waiting for his disciples. But what if you're already a part of God's kingdom? Are you fully committed to being a part of God's kingdom? 
What are you holding on to that is superseding the will of God on your own life? I want us to let go of that fear. Let go of that doubt and stop overcomplicating things. Don't just believe that Jesus can do it for someone else, but trust that he can do it in you. The message of Jesus really was simple, and every part of it hangs on him being the promised Messiah that the world had been waiting for. And all that he asked us to do was make the choice every day to repent and to believe. So what is it that you're holding on to that you still haven't quite turned over to Jesus? Maybe you're afraid to take that step to serve here at the church. Maybe it's somewhere out of your comfort zone. Maybe you've been afraid to share the good news with that friend at school or with that coworker. Maybe you're struggling to have the faith to give financially to God, but we need to make the choice today to submit to our own will and truly, really follow Jesus. I want us to think about that word believe again. Are we really truly believing or is it surface level? Have you truly entrusted every single part of your life to Jesus? Your family, your work, everything. And these are not easy things to do, but it is what Jesus asked us to do. So we should be striving to do it every single day. We need to stop living like the kingdom has not come yet because it's here. There's no time to wait. There's urgency that the disciples sensed and we need to sense that urgency too. The kingdom is here. The time is now. The time has come and it all started with Jesus. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. God, we are just so thankful for you. We are thankful for your love and we're thankful for that redemptive plan through your son, Jesus. God, thank you for giving us Jesus and beginning your kingdom in him. God, thank you for giving us such an example on how to live in your kingdom well. Thank you for giving us such a good example on how to share the good news and to love others well in your son, Jesus. God, I pray that you would just move in this room today and help all of us who are just waiting to get to work in God's kingdom because we know it is here, it is in us. God, help us to let go of those things we're holding on to. Help us to let go of our fears and our doubts. Help us to know that we are enough for you to work with. Even in all of our inadequacies, you are enough us to rest in that Lord God I pray that you would help us to all go out with boldness knowing that you love us knowing that you are going to care for us even if it doesn't make sense logically we know that you're there 
to know that you are going to care for us. God, I pray that all of us would just honor you with ourselves this week. God, I pray that all of us would live fully committed to your kingdom this week with this first sermon of Jesus in mind. The kingdom is near. Repent and believe the good news. God, we thank you for that message. It's still true for us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.